You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, brought to you by Nualtra. My name is Neve Lilliman and I'm a second year student dietitian. I'm delighted to be taking up the mantle from Lucy and hosting the podcast this year. And I'll be with you until summer 2023 as we talk to a number of brilliant guests. We've also added a new segment to the podcast, so do keep an eye out for that after our interview with today's guest. Through this podcast, we aim to inspire student dietitians by sharing knowledge and gaining insight from experienced guests. In light of the government's recent release of the Women's Health Strategy for England and September 2022's PCOS Awareness Month, we are joined by registered dietitian Anita Beckwith to discuss women's health dietetics and how students can gain experience and skills to pursue this speciality after graduating. In this episode, we'll talk to Anita about her career journey and experience as a specialist in women's health and fertility dietetics. We will also discuss the future of women's health and how student dietitians can get involved in this area. Without further ado, I'll hand you over to Anita to introduce herself. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, So yes, my name is Anita Beckwith. I'm a UK registered dietitian. I've been a dietitian since 2000, so it's quite a while now, 22 years. Um, I um, primarily worked, started working in diabetes and um, and specialised in diabetes. From there, I grew my interest into women's health and fertility. So I work with all of those things um, at the moment. And I work and split my time between the NHS and uh, my private practice. Um, and within those roles, I sit on a number of committees. I have a number of responsibilities within that. So Daphne, which is a structured education program for type one, I'm on their executive board. I'm also on another diabetes board called Ideal, which is a multidisciplinary uh, team board. And I'm the dietetic representative for that. Um, I, in terms of the women's health realm and the fertility realm, I'm a certified fertility dietitian um, and prenatal dietitian, and I'm on the advisory board for the Early uh, Life Nutrition Alliance, um, and also sit on the committees for the uh, diabetes specialist groups of the B, uh, sorry, specialist groups of the BDA, um, and that's uh, the diabetes one and the maternal fertility nutrition group as well. Welcome to the podcast, Anita. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm really looking forward to learning about your specialism. Should we get started? Yep, let's do it. Lovely. Um, so I suppose to start things off, you you talked about your career journey um, a little bit. Could you go into a little bit more detail, kind of where did it all be- begin and sort of how did you get into diabetes and that evolution to, to women's health? Yeah, yeah. So dietetics itself, when I when I looked at dietetics, um, it was a long time ago. I, I always sort of say when people ask me about it, it was way before nutrition was sexy is the way I say it, because there's a lot more interest in nutrition and um, the importance of it in our health nowadays. Um, so at that time, um, I was, you know, like we all are looking for university options and thinking, what can we do? And the school I went to was very, um, we had very specific subjects. There wasn't much variation in our subjects. And I really like enjoyed the sciences, really enjoyed biology. Um, and it was actually a conversation with a friend who actually ended up becoming a physio that I learned about what a dietitian was. Um, and I like people, I like food and I like science. So it sort of put all of those worlds together and food for me in my at my home my mum's an amazing cook um I'm a mum Sri Lankan so I'm 
um, uh, mixed race, I'm half Sri Lankan, half English, and, and food was a really important part of bringing the family together, um, bringing people together um, culturally. So I saw the importance and the connection with that, but then it brought all the other aspects that I was interested in and had the subjects for to be able to choose nutrition and dietetics at that time. Um, and so I knew I was going to, after when I started actually from university, I knew a couple of years later, I want to, I was good planning to go backpacking with a friend. So I knew in those first couple of years, I was getting my experience as much as possible. And near the end of that time, I actually had, and people often will have, you'll have one patient that will really stick in your mind that you've, you've worked with. And it was actually, it was actually a case that made me feel that I didn't want to go back to dietetics. And it happened soon to, to the point where I was, I was leaving for my year out. And, um, it it just didn't the aspects of communication, the multidisciplinary team, the way things worked and the outcome for this patient. Um, I really felt that their voice hadn't been heard and they were they were on their own. And I was trying to support them with that. And I became quite disillusioned, really, with with working within this scope of, of practice. And I came back from my travels and uh, my mum gave me a short, sharp chat about um, earning money and trying to survive. And I came back thinking I'll work in travel in some way and with no actual idea and came back into dietetics by locuming and then actually the Daphne program so that's the dose adjustment for normal eating program so that's structured education in type 1 diabetes had just been around the the um around that time the BMJ article which has shown the impact that um this intervention can have for people living with type 1 diabetes had come out and it was rolling out further and further and I took a real interest so and I really enjoyed diabetes um in my in my training and had always thought that I'd go into maybe oncology and not more of an acute based setting um in terms of more inpatient work um previously but really enjoyed that that um aspect of things and I think also I lost I lost my dad when I was um 16 years of age um that had a big impact in wanting to support and work with people as well and a health way and I did think at that point it would have been oncology because he died of skin cancer so um it was a it's a switch in what I was going to do but actually what what we were able to do working with people with type one is improve their quality of life while working with a fit and well person and being and supporting that person. But you work through their life stages. So I will, I've got patients that I saw at diagnosis when they were 18 months old with type one diabetes that are now, um, you know, young adults um, and, um, and are experiencing the world. And I've gone through their life stages, you know, through puberty, through um, the first of, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, uh, going on to university, careers, whatever. And you work through people's life stages. And within that, I started to see the differences between men. We, we know the difference between men and women, but you could see the differences because you can see the differences in how people manage their blood glucose levels, the difference in response with insulin, the difference um, considerations people need to have. And I really enjoy within type one diabetes working with people who are exercising, whether they're, they're at an elite level or a day-to-day -day regular sort of level of exercise. And also there are differences for, for women and men in the way they respond to activity. So this grew my interest. And then also in terms of women's health, there are conditions that are, are um, increased in uh, incidence with diabetes. So 
something like PCOS. So I'd start to see more and more of this and that grew my interest. Um, within the NHS, so I, as I said, I divide my time between the NHS and my private practice. My private practice has grown into seeing more clients because some of the scope of what we are able to do at this moment um, is not as wide or we're not able to see as many people because of resource, because of funding. And as you, you mentioned about the women's health strategy, that may have some impact into our, our abilities to be able to support people more in that in that environment. But certainly my interest has grown in supporting uh, women um, with or without diabetes, in uh, which I'm able to have grown in my in my own practice, which is what I'm doing today. Wow, sounds it's it's you know it's clearly you've had like a lot of experience and it's it's interesting to hear about that evolution from from diabetes to sort of PCOS and women and yeah you're right like you know men and women are very different and I suppose the, the world in, in you know from a nutrition perspective it's a completely different ball game isn't it so it's it's interesting to sort of see that evolution um I think yes you, so you mentioned about PCOS um in terms of like your specialism in in that area um, and the sort of patients you see could you sort of talk about sort of the, I suppose the type the types of conditions a little bit more detail about that um and maybe sort of about the you know the patients that you see yeah yeah so um within as I said because I've seen people through that sort of lifeline and, and life cycle so mm-hmm. I will see I will see people with PCOS, um, endometriosis, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, and then I go and then working particularly in the fertility space, which is a particular interest of mine. So working with people, whether it's natural conception or assisted conception. So I work with people building up to their IVF cycle and often the impact. And that's the powerful thing of um seeing the impacts and that's what really motivates me of what we can do and what nutrition can do to support someone's health in all of these aspects mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's really important um to either reduce symptoms or improve outcomes um and um so working with those women and then also perimenopause and menopause um okay. so i work with people further um further in the cycle but my main focus um, is more in the fertility space and I missed that pregnancy but yes antenatal care as well which is actually where the interest really grows because within the NHS the services are developed for pregnancy and antenatal services are there um, there's there's more to be done there's more more to support women but the pregnancy services are there and it was always my interest of what comes before that to support the outcomes of pregnancy which is where my real focus came into fertility and supporting women prior to that that time as well and then sorry you mentioned as well so the types the 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 types of women and and you know often I'll see women where um they have been particularly trying for a baby I either see two things I either see people who often with diabetes who are starting out on their journey of conception or they're wanting to optimize their chances later in life and they're very aware of it um or there are people that have been trying women couples that have been trying for a period of time and haven't had the outcomes that they've wanted and actually sometimes you know the the impact that nutrition and lifestyle changes can have is means that sometimes we find the solution without people needing to go on to have IVF and if not if they've gone through and we've worked together they've certainly optimized their chances of better outcomes for their IVF cycle anyway so it's sort of a win-win with working with that 
Um, and, and unfortunately, the nutrition parts and the lifestyle change parts often gets missed. Um, and there's can often be quite a jump in fertility clinics from moving from I'm trying to conceive to jumping to IVF. And there's actually some solutions in between. And as I said, there's never going to be any harm done in looking at optimizing your nutrition and, and lifestyle for, you, for yourself as well as future generations. And I think that's a really key thing working in this space is that a woman's um, health actually dictates the health of the society in a way. So I don't know if you've heard of something called the first 1000 days. So where the nutrition and um, the nutrition and uh, lifestyle impacts um, epigenetics, basically in the gene expression of, of the baby. And that happens from three months prior to conception to roughly approximately the child's sort of second birthday. So that means the woman's you know intake and their lifestyle and the impact of that from prior to conception throughout pregnancy post-pregnancy and then and then beyond is impacting the genetic expression of that that child so that means not only their health during that period of time but also their health long term and there is associations with uh you know there, there's definitely research and it's building and building this world's quite that area of science is quite exciting of seeing that's definitely associations with um diet and lifestyle to late to disease and illness later in later life for children so that's quite a powerful thing to think that that women impact yeah i think of it that in that way that actually our health impacts you know society's health um you know in, in terms of our having our offspring that's so interesting to sort of think about because I don't think I thought about it like that. You know, you just think, oh, I'm helping. Or when I, you know, I think about it, oh, helping with PCOS symptoms or fertility. But actually it's that kind of has a almost like an exponential effect, doesn't it? You know, it's not just for the now. Um, mm-hmm. It's for future as well for both mum and baby, I suppose. So that's that's really interesting. Um, and I think you've, you've really highlighted how, I mean, I definitely underestimated how important, but I think possibly how underestimated maybe the impact of, of that area is. Um, so it sounds like it's, you know, really exciting sort of space to be in. Um, definitely. Yeah. Wow. It's like opened a whole new sort of like thing in my mind. So Anita, you are a founding member of the BDA Maternal and Fertility Specialist Group. I'd love to understand the impetus for setting this up. Why did you feel that recognition was needed? Yeah, I think um, in, individually, the, there was a few of us probably having convers- starting to have conversations, they're starting to have more conversations and connecting. And personally, for me, as I've described through through my career, I've seen the, the gaps for women because I've been working with women with diabetes, particularly type one, because there's type one care still in the UK is based in a, an acute setting. And in my NHS hostel job, that's, that's where I'm working. So I would see people through these stages, but thinking, there's certain amount of care that's there, but there's bits missing. Then what about the women who don't have diabetes who some of the support isn't isn't there for? And I also think of the experience of myself at school. So I went to a girls' school. I've got, um, there's eight of us that are still very close friends. And actually thinking of the, the experiences and the signs and symptoms of what we had previously to, to uh, at school thinking about like painful periods and told to you know mm. just go swimming do another lap or two or whatever you'll be fine <laughs> and then actually what's happened in our lives where people have had been diagnosed with different con- reproductive conditions you know endometriosis PCOS whatever and linking it back and thinking well actually we could have supported people more earlier on and actually a huge part of that is education um, and a huge part of my role is education. So in terms of setting up the, the 
group itself, I think we'd all identified there were gaps. And um, we'd also seen in in other countries, perhaps in America, in Australia, um, there were certain... um, One of my uh, colleagues um, and the founder of the Early Life Nutrition Alliance, which is based in Australia, is Melanie McGrice. And I think she sort of coined the phrase fertility dietitian, but she's definitely developed a a platform there and an environment to support dietitians to train. And we really wanted a UK-based part. And as I said, in terms of women uh, dietitians being exposed to antenatal services um, and supporting women, it normally comes from a diabetes realm because of the care that's there in the NHS. And actually it was growing conversation of the gaps that were there um, for people. So I think that's where we felt that we could support um, our our colleagues um, and develop our workforce to be able to support women um, and men, um, but but in this study we're talking about women. So women to be able to have better quality of life, the outcomes they want, and also to support that education piece. So thinking about the education that I had, it was very much about scaremongering about getting falling pregnant rather than what are the actual chances of you falling pregnant and where does that fit mm. um, in in for everything and it was very much more career driven um rather than really focusing on um thinking about actually the the reality of these things and really we want people to be able to be empowered and open up the conversation and not feel embarrassed or shy or guilty or shameful for any of the things that are happening, because a lot of these things aren't things that we talk about openly or haven't been, and we need to be, to be ourselves as healthcare professionals supporting each other, but also supporting people we're we're working with to improve their, their quality of life and outcomes. I know I see a lot on social media about women's health not getting the, the attention it needs and the attention it deserves. What impact does this have on the patients that you see? In terms of the the not feeling that that people are able to discuss things or that, that it isn't understood and supported, for sure, I think I think um, even perhaps in our own experiences, we can think of things maybe where if the conversation isn't open and out there, um, that perhaps it's as I've described those feelings of shame or guilt or feeling that it's sort of secrecy or it's embarrassing or whatever to talk about something. Um, But also um, to not know where to go to be able to discuss it. And a lot of the things, you know, I described the thing about school of I'll just do some extra lengths of swimming, you'll be fine. Um, That kind of thing as well of just get on with it. Um, And Mm. that is partly generational. It's and people have coped and managed managed in different ways but we we're, we're realizing i guess that that isn't as helpful and it's not just the physical health part of it it's also the mental health part um and we know there are huge associations um with um you know pcos in terms of pcos and um mental and emotional health like depression anxiety stress they're very high relationship with there. We know about postnatal depression. We know, um, you know, locally in our service, um, I, I work in, a, in a, a big teaching trust and we're associated also with uh, 
big London University. So we do a lot of research between there and, and my time spent um, in my, mostly in my clinical practice, but I have some academic um, associations as well within that. And we've looked within our gestational diabetes population and seen that there are links with postnatal depression and the links with PTSD in, 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 in described in that way of women going through that experience and actually um, you know, as you've described on social media, sometimes you're actually hearing more of the voices um, through those experiences that way, because perhaps on a day to day, people haven't been able to talk or haven't been able to perhaps feel there's a forum within the healthcare service or the time or resource to be able to support people. So certainly the, the physical impact of that is certainly um, there's certainly an effect, um, but also um, mental health and also in terms of reaching a diverse population. So we know in the UK that women of African Caribbean origin are four times um, more likely to die during or within a year of pregnant uh, uh, labor, basically within that time. And in the Asian populations, twice as likely as a Caucasian woman. Um, and these, these are stats which are coming out and there's huge discrepancies and disparity between um, ethnicity and diversity. We've also got to think of um, the social, other social determinants mm. of health as well, like socioeconomic status. So girls are more likely if they can't afford menstrual products to go to school because they're in, you know, they're not able to afford it. They can't go to school. Um, there's also um, evidence of women um, ceasing their careers, stopping their careers early because of the transition to menopause. Um, these are huge impacts on society, but also onto individuals as well. Um, and it, it's scope to, to think about. So in a broader term, but also within individuals I see, there's definitely an impact. And we see that not just anecdotally, but within the research um, and in practice. It sounds, you know, it's not just an impact on that individuals just their health is it you know it's not just case obviously PCOS doesn't manage here's what happens to your health it's their livelihood um you know as you you know you said about um going to school or giving up careers or things like that mm. um it's you know it's definitely underestimated the, the impact of not having that care um mm. so that definitely needs to change doesn't it um definitely um I think you mentioned a lot of overlap with mental health um, and women's health mm. um in terms of your work in as a I suppose a diabetes specialist as well mm. do you see a lot of overlap with women's health issues there too in terms, yes, absolutely. So in terms of diabetes on its own, we know that there's increased rates of depression, stress, anxiety. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of type 2 diabetes, this is a bit of a chicken egg, which comes first, whether it's the diabetes that leads into the, the depression health or whether it's depression that starts, mm -hmm. there's links and there's sort of a, a, a circular a vicious cycle within that where that where that starts because there's associations but certainly in chronic conditions like type 1 and type 2 diabetes where someone is managing something on a day-to-day -day, there's a lot of self-management um, uh, tasks and skills and knowledge that somebody has to have that if you don't have diabetes you wouldn't even be thinking about um, and you'd have all that headspace to be free so that's a carry on. Then, then the same thing with PCOS as you described, and there was, as I said, an increased risk of PCOS with type one and type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, that there will be, there's a huge impact on um, a woman's mental and emotional health as well as their physical health in what's going on. And again, there can be a lot of shame and guilt with things like PCOS, where it may be, you know, there's body image 
issues there's um issues about or it's just hormones or you can manage that or you know if you go on the pill it'll be sorted out um and there's and sometimes some of the conversations if someone wants to have them can be can be shut down so there's certainly an impact um on the diabetes alone with women's health as well definitely and it's something a few years ago at my center we've started to look a little bit more and that's something i'm quite interested in looking at women's health in diabetes mm-hmm. um so i'm doing a, looking at a few things there um and we're looking at some research um into the menopause with women with um diabetes as i said previously there's definite links with changes in blood glucose levels around a woman's period but the changes in estrogen progesterone will will impact um uh blood glucose levels as well to some people more okay. significantly than others yeah yeah I mean, it's a, there's obviously a lot of overlap sort of, I suppose, between specialisms, isn't there? The diabetes and mental health, women's mm-hmm. health. And um, I suppose to me that really reinforces how important it is, even if you don't necessarily specialise in women's health like yourself, for dietetic professionals and students to, to have an understanding of it. Because even if you don't, I suppose, specialise as a women's health dietitian, mm-hmm. you, you're going to see it crop up. Um and dietitians do get some good training into CBT and motivational interviewing, mm-hmm. so cognitive behavioral therapy as well. So, so there are we do have some of those skills w- within our, our training and within practice. Um, and again, at the centre, I'm, I'm I'm lucky enough to work with some very good clinical psychologists and psychiatrists, and we have them in our MDT and diabetes. So we have clinical supervision and support, and that's really helped me support, as I described, that long term condition part. So when you're working with somebody through PCOS or a woman, a woman through her reproductive and menopausal years, you have a lot of those skills to be able to support somebody through their, um, their journey. And, you know, now women are living, are living potentially and often living longer in their menopausal years than their reproductive years now, because of the, the number of years that women are living. So it's, it's, there's there's a huge amount that we you know we need to be supporting people but not just one at one you know point in their life it's throughout their life and throughout those life stages like really seeing the differences between each decade of what what that brings um to a woman um both you know physically and mentally and emotionally yeah yeah it's a life cycle process yeah. isn't it it's you know there's never just one set thing it's always going to impact something later in the life cycle um yeah definitely and i think you said about um you know, one of your reasons for sort of going into your own private practice was there wasn't a lot of scope in the NHS. Um, So as with sort of, you know, women's health issues, fertility, it's becoming, you know, more recognised. Do you think, just from your experience, that there's going to be more opportunity in the the NHS for this, this, you know, this specialism to, to take place? I really hope so. Um, and there is there is some there is some changes. So I think there are women's there are some women's health dietitians working. There's more more um, from an antenatal perspective. Actually, it's more of a pregnancy perspective, but not just diabetes. So there will be in some areas of the country there are established posts um, in that way. But most people, as I said, will go in in the NHS. They'll be entering it via the diabetes route, and then it might be working with. Um, funding and often it is the um, women's health um, uh, services that will also support the diabetes services to have the resources and funding for dietitians. Um, in terms of um, fertility, I know of one of our colleagues um, who is on the maternal specialist group, who maternal fertility specialist group, who is a fertility dietitian. I think the only NHS fertility dietitian I know of. Um, and um, we are within the group looking at scope of 
talking to the NHS and improving, um, you know, understanding of what we can do and the impact we can do and hopefully working towards building a picture for funding more dietitians to work in this area within the NHS. Um, and, you know, often within business cases, and I think this is a really key thing I can say, I guess I say now, is that if we're having these conversations now. It's great if you're thinking of um, the impact you can have in the future as well as now um, is, you know, women in leadership, women having those conversations, being on the board, you know, just in case there's an opportunity to mention a dietitian. I've done that many a time. Um, you know, there might be one scope and they'll, they'll be like closing remarks and then you can just say your piece about, you know, um, uh, the impact we can have. And I think sometimes... Strangely, although nutrition is vital for our survival, it sort of gets overlooked because we have a choice and it's accessible to us. Um, and historically, when we think about healthcare, healthcare has often been about disease intervention rather than disease prevention, which we're seeing more in public health, but we need to work more on. And also, it's not just an individual's responsibility. This is something that needs, um, you know, uh, organisations, the government, the NHS, you know, big organisations. And, and, and again, the messaging and how that comes about. And we've seen that with um, some of the some of the messaging around obesity um, can be very sort of individual blaming rather than looking at it as a societal level. So how are we managing things um, in terms of a whole society and what does that look like in terms of our shopping experiences, in terms of the choices we have? Um, and there are some changes happening and, and that support is really seen there. So in terms of, um, you know, opportunities for yourselves becoming in this area I'd say it's keeping the conversation going and seeing the impact we can have and it's certainly it's certainly growing and growing and building yeah that's definitely a good point you know I think you've raised about keeping the conversation there because although there's not loads of job roles there at the moment in that that specialism it sounds as if you know if we keep the conversation going um and you know students who are interest, interested in that try and get involved and you know just kind of push that a little bit in their careers that actually we could you know we could develop develop it and get more of a get more opportunities in the NHS because you know that's where most dietitians when they graduate that's where they they go and have their careers so that's definitely um you know a good thing to 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 look into I think um I, I think people I don't know about you but I tend to find you know if I'm looking at a publication or you know the government um guideline or something dietitians don't always get talked about you know you hear about nurses you hear about doctors and obviously they're really important but I think yeah. people tend to forget about dietitians and nutrition I can yeah. see your you can you can you can resonate with that um yeah. I mean with the women's health strategy for England um could you could you possibly if there is at all you know expand on what that means for dietitians um you know are there any bits in there that are relevant to us um, and as students that we need to be aware of mm. yeah yeah so I mean really welcome the women's health strategy so just to give a little background um on what it actually is so that was published in July this year um and it's a strategy that came about and many of you may have answered the um uh a questionnaire that came out last year looking at women's experiences really asking women what were their experiences of healthcare and really what made mainly came about was women feeling they haven't been listened to um not always feeling safe in the 
the environments they've been in, perhaps, and um, also that the service provision was quite varied around the country, and that was really noted. And really, this came about because because fifty percent of the population are women, and all the health and social care strategies that are out there are designed by men for men, and women aren't little men. Um, we are very different, and we've talked about mainly in terms of reproductive health, but there are other variations, you know, th things like we, we do live longer, women live longer than men, but they actually live with a, a poorer quality of life. Um, so they live with more illness, more disability through that time. Um, and there's just often the support happens more in acute, an acute period of, of care that's needed, but not in more of a chronic longer term care and not looking, and this is the idea of the women's health strategy, to look at those life points and life cycles. So you're looking through the life stages and there's support throughout those life stages. In terms, as you said of, so I just wanted to set the scene there, but in terms of what that looks like um, and what though the strategy is over these 10 years is very much looking at things like we've talked about, like opening up the communication and opening it up between healthcare professionals, between individuals, between, um, you know, the people's places of work as well to support them. It's improving access to services like contraception, IVF, uh, maternity services, support with mental health, things like this. Um, and there is part in there about improved um, training for medical students. So the GMC will include women's health. But there, so there's more, as you said, on a focus of more for medical team. But we need that to filter down for us. And that's part of that part of within our specialist group that we are looking at that and we are looking at voices. So I've, another thing I'd say is that if we do. Um, you know, in terms of where dietetics stands, we we are a group of people. You can join as a student. I think within the BDA, you can join two of the specialist groups free for a year or something like that. I think you're yeah. not doing something that's right. Yeah. Um, so um, pick one. You might want to pick ours. Um, and um, and you can then be involved in in having a voice within this as well. So we will ask questions within the um, membership um, and support and we do ask for project ideas and things like this we've just had our uh, recent annual uh, committee meet like we have more than that but a big committee meeting yeah. longer. and um, and we've really talked about what's needed so I think in terms of students in terms of dietitians themselves it's really making sure we're at the table at these conversations we're not hearing it later on and as a collective we speak we speak well individually but also together is being part of the group or, or seeing what happens um with what we're developing and also use your voice to inform us of what you want to do or ideas you have to do things so when questionnaires and things come out please do respond that we can then have a a bigger voice as a collective and I think you're right to say that there are opportunities within it because it's all about opening up um, the conversation opening up and improving education for healthcare professionals and um, uh, in women themselves and opening that up through their life stages and opening up wherever they are in whichever environment they're in as well and we know that nutrition and lifestyle as dietitians has an impact um, so it's really making sure that as I said, if you are, you know, get involved in committees and groups and things, because you'll see the difference in um, if you have a dietitian on a board with when you look at the guidelines, you can tell because there'll be mention more of a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And that's the best way I can say of 
having an impact, getting yourself involved in those meetings. Um, and I know I've I've done things like that where perhaps our medical team and nursing team been involved, and I've just said, can I, you know, can I come along and 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 have a conversation as well? Um, and really, it's that repeated pattern I'd say that's going to help. So the the actual document definitely has opportunity for us, but we need to then utilize that Let's as a springboard. Yeah. Yeah. I think for um, students as well, it's nice to hear that we can get involved now, um, even if it's just been part of the conversation. So I think for the students listening, anyone who is interested in this, like the specialist groups, we can, there's two we can join for free. Um, so it sounds like we should definitely make use of that if we're interested. Um, and it's a good place to start if, if that's where we want our careers to go. Um, yeah. I suppose just moving on to because our podcast is for students so I mean health issues like PCOS and fertility um they can be quite sensitive subjects um and you know what skills and qualities do you think as students we should start to develop now so that when we work with patients who suffer with these conditions we, we can do an effective job skills so I would say one of the biggest sort of biggest skill the best skill for these for women that I've worked with that I've noticed listening because often by the time they've come to see you um they have had a new numerous experiences and haven't felt listened to and actually interestingly that's what's come out from the women's health strategy as well from the um the questionnaire that came out before the report was was um, the strategy itself was published so um actually listening and actually listening and giving someone space to talk about what's happened in their experiences and acknowledging their experiences and um, not judging for the the um, path and where where they're at. And I always say when people sometimes ask what's what's sort of my stance in the way I practice, I always say my philosophy is pro choice pro choice anti judgment. So it's kind of like there's. I've worked with so many people over the years and everyone has uh, their own story and their own life. And it's really giving people space to acknowledge it. So I'd say that's a really key thing. And I think within our training and where you have opportunity, where there are the CBT type courses and motivational interviewing type courses. And again, they, they really vary um, within my, um, I did an MSc in advanced diabetes practice and at, at KCL, one of those mod, one of the modules was, more of an MI motivational interviewing type thing. And it was on another level to things I'd done before. So you will see um, what fits and just keep building that and keep practicing because that stuff, you need practice with that stuff and clinical supervision. So as I said, I'm, I'm lucky to work with psychologists and psychiatrists that I have that um, regularly, but that's a really key part because you can learn to just open up a conversation. And what dietitians do really, we do give information um, about the, the what and the how, but we're very practical. And actually we, we're counselors very much. I'd say about 80% of the time it's it's listening and understanding the person we're working with and seeing what works for them. So that would be my absolute key skill I think mm -hmm. yeah okay no it's good to hear and I think that um at university you know we talked talked about active listening um, and motivational interviewing and sometimes those lessons I think people think oh do we need to do this or you know I think it's just a thing oh you know that never happens in natural consultation but I think particularly in this specialism it sounds as if that's actually one of the most important things so for students now to you know don't skip those lessons and you know and and take what you can from them and make the most of them definitely um obviously you know a lot of our our learning happens on placement and um, the students who want to get more experience with 
you know, just working with patients with PCOS or possibly fertility if they get the opportunity. Are there any areas in the NHS that you'd recommend students sort of try to get a bit of experience in to get exposure to this? So within within student placement, if you have like di- di- well, in the hospital, they have a diabetes and endocrine department. So often you'll you'll see people within that that's that scope in that area, that specialism where you will see um, women with it, with, um, you know, the pregnant or um, with some of the women's health conditions we've described. That would be one of the areas there are also as I said there are women's health dietitians and there are women's health hospitals so if you're also at one of those you will see a dietitian will be seeing more of these women um and aside from that then there are women uh, there are sorry dietitians with their own practices so and dietitians can offer um student placements as well so there's experience and opportunity so like myself you can contact and see if there's opportunity to get experience so also if you're not able to have that within your actual nhs program there is opportunity so and i totally welcome people contacting me and people do um to to have some experience there that's really reassuring to know that actually i suppose dietitians are are, are welcome to to have people for experience even if it's outside of placement i think that's that's really important because if we can't get it on placement um we have to find it elsewhere so it's nice that there's a nice community feel there that that students are welcomed and and actually what we what we can do from this is actually i'll i'll discuss it with the committee the maternal fertility group committee and talk about us being able to um you know is there a way of us being able to support or have names or a list or whatever um and a way of if students want to but i mean you can definitely contact us um and um what i can do is i can drop you the, the email if people wanted to and are interested we could we could look at how that would that would work because that's that's an opportunity there for sure yeah that would be fabulous I think there's lots of lots of students who would be interested in that and that would that would be incredibly helpful for them so yeah that would be fantastic thank you so Anita finally if you could go back to when you were a student dietitian what do you wish you'd known about working in women's health what would I have known like to have known um I th- I think I think that it even existed to be honest in this scope and that it was acknowledged if I'm honest with you and that um really that there is there was a possibility for it I don't think I think I went through probably I went through training just being sort of given what to do and doing the training and not probably thinking as much until, as I said, I worked with people for longer stages of their life to really see the exposure. And obviously we knew it ourselves, but to see it in more, in a, in a bigger, in a bigger group of people. So um, I think that the part of this is actually, you know, now we, we really do know, we knew anyway, but we really do know there's a differential um, between how women and men need to be supported. Um, and that, a huge part as well from that, I would say, actually, is looking at also whenever we're reading research, whenever we're looking at research, that much of it is based on men. Um, and um, even even to the point where um, citations, the majority of citations, even in research is by male 
researchers or in male um, uh, male populations. Um, so really understanding that and knowing how powerful. So not only we've discussed the clinical aspect, but I'd say even part as well is looking at the academic aspect as well. So if we have more women, and I've described about leadership and being at the table, but also more women involved in academia, um, and more diverse populations of women as well in academia and medicine and in dietetics and um, are able to therefore be involved in that and therefore be able to inform it because we know also research for women is underfunded. So I think that aspect when I was when I was um, you know, writing my dissertation and um, writing journal reviews and things like this is actually looking at where the resources coming from and what impact you can have in the future to not only the clinical part of things, but I'd say the academic part as well and awareness of, of that, because that's really, um, it, you know, influences then what we're actually, what we're actually seeing. And there's, as we said, there's a disparity. And as I said before, it's not just with women and men, but also the diversity of the women that are involved in that research as well. So we need, we need more diversity to inform and, and, you know, bridge that gap and uh, lessen the gap that that is there at the moment. Thank you for that. That was really insightful. And I think the, the, the key message I got from that anyway, was get involved. I think yeah. the way to get this, you know, get the specialism more recognition and, you know, for it to grow is to just get involved. So that's that's a really that's a really nice uh, thing to hear and know that, that those opportunities are there. Anita, thank you so much for joining me as our guest today and sharing your valuable career journey and tips with us. Anita's social media handles will be linked in the show notes and she shares more fantastic content online. So do take a look if you wish to learn more. Now, for the new season of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, we have a very exciting edition. I would like to introduce our new Info to Go edition hosted by Megan. Without further ado, Megan, it's over to you. Thanks, Neve. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Info to Go. I'm Meg, and I'm going to be the host of this brand new segment of the podcast. I'm a third year student dietitian at the University of Chester. And the aim of this space is to engage with you, our listeners and fellow RD2Bs to share ideas, experiences and questions relating to all aspects of being a student dietitian. I'll also be sharing some tools and resources with you so you can go on to further develop your knowledge after listening to the podcast and keep up with your continued professional development or CPD. To start off the academic year and this new segment, I thought I would ask you, the listeners, what your top tips for other students studying dietetics would be. This could be something that you'd wish you'd known earlier or something that's really helped you when studying dietetics. For example, something I wish I'd found out sooner is how big the online dietetic community is. There are so many dietitians sharing insights into what it's like to be a dietitian in their field, which can be a great way to learn more about the different professions within dietetics, especially if, like me, you're unsure of what area you would like to specialize in in the future. If you would like to share your top tips, then you can email or message a soundbite to newultrapodcast at hrscommunications.com. I would love to hear from you as I will then be sharing your top tips and recommendations in the next episode of this podcast. As I mentioned before, social media can be a really great way to learn more about different specialisms within dietetics. And there are so many amazing people on social media talking about and working within women's health that make learning easy to add into your daily life and your social media scroll. Some of my top recommendations of who to follow on Instagram would be 
Today's guest, Anita Beckwith, who you can find at fertility.hormone.dietitian. If you would like to find out more about menopause or the midlife in regards to women's health, then you can follow Laura Clark on, on menopause.dietitian on Instagram. I would also recommend following Rohuntress, who you can find at fertility.dietitian.uk. Ro is a specialist fertility dietitian who's also been a guest on the Main Dietitian Cafe podcast, where she discussed the role of nutrition and dietetics in fetal and maternal health. And that episode will also be linked in the show notes if you'd like to give it a listen. If you'd like some more general information about women's health outside of dietetics, then the food medic and the gyne geek would be a great people to follow. My final recommendation for social media would be Claire Pettit, who you can find at CP underscore nutrition RD. Claire specializes in PCOS, infertility and pregnancy nutrition. And she uses her Instagram and blog to discuss a range of important topics within women's health. Claire will also be running a webinar on the 16th of November, all about PCOS on my Nutri web. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, then that might be something you want to sign up to. My Nutri web is a great place to find all the upcoming webinars covering a wide range of topics within dietetics. Most of their webinars are in the evening and only last about an hour, so a really easy way to add to your CPD. Over the next month, they've got webinars in weight stigma, time-restricted eating, and the science of nutrition, so there's something for whatever you're interested in. As Neve mentioned earlier, September was PCOS Awareness Month, so now is a great time to be learning more about topics like PCOS and developing your knowledge on women's health in general. But also coming up this month, from the 10th to the 16th of October, it's going to be Malnutrition Awareness Week, when BAPEN will be raising awareness of malnutrition and calling for people to ask look and listen for signs and risk factors of malnutrition. For those that may not know, BAPEN is a charitable association designed to raise malnutrition awareness, which they do by providing a range of useful resources, toolkits and e-learning opportunities, which can all be found on their website. BAPEN are probably best known for producing the MUST or Malnutrition Universal Screening Tool, which many listeners will have used and many dietitians across the UK will use to screen patients during their hospital admission. You can also follow them at Bapen UK on Twitter for all their latest updates. For more information about anything that I've mentioned today, please check out the show notes. And if you have any other exciting CPD opportunities that you know of that are coming up, then please, I would love to hear from you. And you can drop me an email at newultrapodcast at hrscommunications.com. And that's all the info to go for today's episode. So I'll hand back over to Neve in the main cafe. Thanks, Megan. Those were some really fantastic resources. And I'm sure many students will find these incredibly valuable in their student dietitian journeys. I would like to say a huge thank you once again to New Altra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RD2Bs. You can also follow New Altra on social media at New Altra on all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.